Our dependence on connected technology is growing faster than our ability to secure it, especially in areas affecting public safety and human life. I'm Bryson Bort, and this is Hack the Plant. Electricity, finance, transportation, our water supply. We take these critical infrastructure systems for granted, but they're all becoming increasingly dependent on the internet to function. Every day, I ask and look for answers to the questions. Does our connectivity leave us more vulnerable to attacks by our enemies? I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and the co-founder of the nonprofit ICS Village, educating people on critical infrastructure security with hands-on examples, not just nerd stuff. I founded Grimm in 2013, a consultancy that works the front lines of these problems every day for clients all over the world. It's playing out in Israel right now where hackers have been going after Israeli water systems. Again, not to steal information from them, but to change the setting on the chemicals in Israeli water. Each month, I'm going to walk you through my world of hackers, insiders, and government working on the front lines of cybersecurity and public safety to protect the systems you rely upon every day. If you think that the small town water authorities and the mom and pop size companies uh, have better cybersecurity in the US than the Israelis do, I have really, really bad news for you. An attack on our critical infrastructure, the degradation to the point that they can no longer support us means that we go back to the Stone Age literally overnight. If we think the government's gonna solve it for us, we're wrong, we have to help them. This is not a podcast for the faint of heart. If you want to meet those protecting the world and what problems keep them up at night, then this is the podcast for you. I'm Bryson Bort, and this is Hack the Plant. For today's episode, I'm joined by David Carr, leader of Southern California Edison's energy contract management team which manages their long-term energy procurement contracts, approximately $4 billion annually. David is an attorney who moved from real estate litigation to Southern California Edison, where he established programs for cybersecurity, participation in California's greenhouse gas emissions cap and trade market, and Dodd-Frank compliance. We discussed how the power grid works and the changing landscape of keeping our energy grids safe from cyber attacks. It's really quite incredible when you consider all of the millions of similar transactions that are occurring simultaneously. The thing is that when you see these things in the movies, and I know you know this and most of your listeners are probably aware of this, it's not something where you just push one button and the whole thing turns off. Uh, So... You know, it's not about guarding this one red button on one control panel uh, on the proverbial Homer Simpson (laughs) type screen, right? It's much more complicated than that, which I say partially to indicate of how tough the job is. But the flip side of that is also that that's a great opportunity, right? Because that means that there's plenty of redundancy and plenty of resiliency in the system. And that's the part that gives me greater hope. We also explored the challenges 
of establishing a regulatory compliance program. In particular, how to anticipate cybersecurity threats. You know, it's not just an N minus one, right? Normal uh, with one thing going wrong, uh, but thinking N minus two, N minus three, right? What happens if we have a series of wildfires and that limits which lines we can have operational? And we're in the middle of a global pandemic. So we're limited in our ability to interact physically. It used to be when you tried to get creative, right? Some of the scenarios you would dream up, people would roll their eyes. This could never happen. This could never be, right? Maybe one silver lining out of the COVID pandemic has been that people are more open to more creativity in this role playing because they have a greater appreciation of, yeah, some crazy things really can happen and they can come together and all happen at once. What is next for SCE? What are some potential opportunities and threats on the horizon for the safety of our electric grid? Join us to learn more. Disclaimer, the opinions expressed by David Carr are his own and do not necessarily represent the positions, strategies, or opinions of Southern California Edison, its parent company Edison International, or any of their affiliates. Uh, my name is David Cower, and I uh, am an attorney by training and uh, kind of accidentally cybersecurity uh, attorney. I worked uh, worked for Southern California Edison for about a decade in the cybersecurity space, initially uh, in the law department, where I was supporting the implementation of the NERC regulations, NERC meaning the North American Electric Reliability Council. Uh, NERC is an industry trade group that has a unique relationship with FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, whereby NERC, that industry trade group, gets to establish the regulations for cybersecurity, for uh, the energy uh, in particular, the electric energy industry in North America. Um, it's a unique relationship because they have a similar partnership with the Mexican and Canadian counterparts of the federal government's FERC. Uh, the reason for that, that's kind of an outgrowth of the Energy Policy Act of 2005. And what happened in the late aughts was that these, what were a voluntary uh, guidelines of this industry trade group became regulatory requirements with the force of law. Utilities and others in the electric industry had to start implementing them. Uh, we, we began to do that. I initially was supporting the first uh, few versions in uh, the, the regulations have version numbering similar to software, which is also something very unique in the regulatory world. Uh, but in any case, I supported the first few from the law department. Uh, then in later versions um, in the past few years here, it has become something where it requires a more robust compliance program. And I stood up the first cybersecurity compliance program at Southern California Edison. Um, uh, and from there, uh, really helped to build out the controls across the company to consider all of the cybersecurity implications, 
Uh, initially, it was about the regulatory requirements and what the letter of the law said, and then uh, thinking, okay, well, you know, here's the base minimum. What are we doing next? What else are we doing? Let's uh, think about potential threats. Uh, you know, how do we then guard against those? What do we need to be worried about? What uh, is a little too uh, Hollywood script for us to be worrying about? And where's that sweet spot in between? So it was a pretty interesting role with, um, you know, thankfully a lot, a lot of uh, great opportunities to really dig into the systems we had across the company. So I'll tell you a little bit about Southern California Edison. It's electric utility covering about uh, a third of the landmass of California, but about half of the population. Um, so it's serving uh a, a total of about somewhere under 15 million individuals. Uh, but in addition to that, operating the transmission, that portion of the transmission grid that's running through that third of the landmass of California, that is the service territory for Edison. So what that means, and, and one other thing is the way that California's utilities are set up, we have, uh, it's not fully integrated, meaning uh, a traditional utility you'd have would own everything from the generation power plant, the wires, all the way to the meter on the back of the customer's house. Uh, because of energy deregulation in the early part of this century in California, Edison owns very little in the way of generation facilities. There's still a few that we have, but uh, at the end of the day, it's uh, mostly owned by third parties, those generation facilities. And so it, it's a pretty good mix, you know, taking a look at what the uh, cybersecurity landscape is for a company like Edison. You have some generation facilities where you need to be thinking about it. You have many generation facilities that you're dependent upon that are operated by others. And so you've got to be working with them. You have the transmission grid that both you're utilizing and the entire Western United States is utilizing uh, to some extent. Uh, and then you have the traditional customer uh, relationships, the retail customer relationships, that customer information. So there's it's quite a, a wide open. Um, there's a lot of room to play. I'll put it that way in a lot of different areas. So to, to clarify, because the, the phases of electricity are generation, the production of electricity, transmission, the moving of that electricity down and breaking it into uh, the different regions for different kinds of consumers um, and it's measuring and monitoring that consumption part. So what exactly does Southern California Edison do on that latter part? Because it sounded like that's also a, a mixed ecosystem. Yeah, no, the, here in California, we uh, have deregulation on the generation side of the wire or the power plant side of the wire. We do not have deregulation on the consumer side of the wire. So those who are familiar with Texas will, uh, will know in Texas, you have a system where you get to pick your the company that you buy from. Uh, here in California, it's uh, assigned to you. It's either one of the investor-owned utilities or IOUs, they're called. Uh, that's Edison's one of those. Or it's uh, your local, uh, in, in many other cases, it's your local city. 
Uh, I actually, ironically, I live in the city of Pasadena, which has a municipal utility. So I don't get the, uh, the discount as an employee. How did you accidentally get into cyber? You were lawyering along and suddenly, boom, cyber. My career as a lawyer, uh, prior to joining Edison, I was actually handling uh, real estate litigation uh, here in Los Angeles at the time in the LA area. And I had an opportunity uh, to join Edison because Edison was having a lot of issues. This was back in the 2006, 2007 period. A lot of things were being built right before the Great Recession. And Edison has, it's, it's one of the larger landowners in the state of California because of all the transmission line property. Um, but there's a lot of legal issues in and around that. And so I ended up uh, joining Edison and handling litigation with various landowners or those who owned land adjacent to the wires, uh, basically working with folks up and down the state as to what you can build under the wires, what you can't build under the wires, what you can build next to the wires, what you can't build next to the wires, uh, why that is, um, for example, uh, you know, just like a, a quick example, right? Um, you can't uh, you can't have certain kinds of storage underneath wires because if uh, smoke bur- uh, if something catches fire and the smoke burns too thickly, think like uh, a tire fire, right? That thick smoke can actually carry electricity to ground from the large transmission line. If you think of the large towers, uh, mostly outside of urban areas, so. There's a lot of safety issues in and around those wires and what can be built uh, on that land or next to that land. So I was dealing with that initially. Um, that work dried up when people stopped building things because of the Great Recession. And at that time, there was a big push in California. Uh, there still is, but uh, to build a lot of interconnections for new energy facilities, solar and wind farms. This is uh, in the late aughts, uh, early teens. And those uh, relationships with the, you know, if you want to build a solar farm out in the desert, uh, oftentimes there won't be a wire going to the place where you want to build the solar farm, which is, you know, you want to build it where it's very sunny. Uh, Generally speaking, when the electric grid was being built uh, in early part of the 1900s across California, the wires were put in places where they'd be protected from wind and protected from the sun and the exposure. Well, turns out all of a sudden we wanted to start putting our power plants, if you will, in the places where it's windy and sunny. So that meant building new wires and all of the wires, those relationships were governed by FERC, uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And so Given that I'd been working on transmission line issues, I moved over from the real estate side of things to FERC regulatory work. Uh, And uh, as I was talking about a little earlier, uh, about that time, FERC also got the assignment to start adopting these cybersecurity regulations, right? So... 
it was really being in that group within the law department where I was handling these transmission line issues. And then this other smaller thing came in and they said, all right, well, we got this new set of regulations. And I, I had an interest in technology myself. So I took it on and uh, it really grew from there into uh, into what we what we see today. And I'm sure there's a lot of growth opportunity even beyond. That came about from when we established a separate group to be handling cybersecurity and uh, handling the compliance side. It was a an acknowledgement that there was a, a large volume of work in terms of traditional compliance work, right? Documentation and just making sure you had all those pieces of evidence and had them in an organized fashion. But, but also at that time, that came about from a reorg. And I think it was great because in that reorg, I had an opportunity to really have conversations with the executives about what it was that we were doing. And those conversations then naturally uh, transitioned from, okay, well, that, that's great. That covers X, but what about Y? What about Z? You know, what about all the other various things? And uh, those were those were some pretty fun conversations because it really got the executives engaged in thinking about the the value proposition from uh, both the, both the threats and the uh, and the opportunities. And so we established a group and was able to staff it up in a way where we had that compliance piece to it, but also could then start to explore what are the other things that could be happening here? In other words, a recognition that regulation is going to be your base minimum of what you should be doing, right? Regulation is what you have to be doing. And depending on the utility that you're operating, it may be appropriate to be at or slightly above the regulatory requirements uh, but if you're a large utility, an entity like Southern California Edison, one of one of the largest utilities in the country, uh, you should be thinking about what else can you be doing? What else do you need to be doing? Uh, how should we be leading the industry in this space, uh, similar to how we're leading the industry elsewhere uh, in other segments uh, of the electric utility industry. And that was really a great opportunity because what that meant was now I could, you know, go and have some fun, right? The, the, <laughs> now I could go with the team and let's, let's start exploring what's out there. Let's uh, delve into this world and uh, see what, what are the threats that are on the horizon. Threat model is a structured representation of all the potential risks and impacts to security. Think about how we apply or would apply those threats if we were, you know, kind of putting on uh, the black hat, if you will, uh, and thinking about how could that be utilized here on this wide variety of systems that we have. A black hat is a hacker who gains unauthorized access for personal profit or out of malice. From everything from the in industrial control systems in power plants for the generation facilities that we do own and operate, um, 
to uh, you know your traditional concerns about uh, data exfiltration uh, and the like, and, and really everything in between. So that was it was a, a, a fun opportunity because there's a lot of room for creativity there. Well, it's especially nice when you get to play the bad guy. You get to take the, you know, you put the hat on, play the role, and then you take the hat off, right? You don't, you don't have to deal with the consequences because you're not actually doing the damage, right? Yeah. So really on two levels, initially it was looking at specific uh, types of attacks and thinking how those could be utilized against our systems. Uh, but then it became more sophisticated in thinking of how could these attacks be coordinated together? uh, by larger actors. Um, you know, and, and now the concerns are primarily in the nation state or similarly organized, uh, organizations, you know, obviously we have some, some threats from the, um, you know, in terms of our customers and the tremendous volume of uh, PII, uh, personally identifiable information that we have as a company with uh, millions of customers. But uh, really, the, I think the greater concern, frankly, is the potential threat uh, for our infrastructure role and what that means. And not necessarily, uh, I don't want to limit it necessarily to just uh, turning off the lights, so to speak. Um, but then what is the plan beyond turning off the lights, right? How, how much further could that go and what purpose would turning off the lights serve? Uh, obviously, our role in that would be to not have the lights turned off. Uh, and, and so a key component of the plan fails. But, uh, you know, it's not, it's not like that's the, the end goal alone. Um, for, for much of what we're thinking about. How do you play the bad guys? It's a fine line between testing your systems and of course not affecting the delivery of electricity to those customers. How do you do that? It's really more uh, running a lot of uh, a tabletop exercises, um, you know, going through the process and stepping through it and thinking, okay, if this happens, then what next? Tabletop exercises help organizations consider different risk scenarios and prepare for potential cyber threats by bringing together functional areas like incident response, public relations, field operations, etc. They walk through a scenario together to identify potential gaps in understanding or process, as well as to validate expectations. You're, you're right. You want to shy away from anything that's going to create any operational risk. Um, in of itself. But uh, I think that there's plenty of room just in that space alone to be able to think through what are the possibilities here? What could happen? Okay. If X happens, then how would we react? What are our options to react? Right. I mean, a key part of that is just being aware of your options uh, of how you would react uh, so that if, uh, if an incident does occur, you know what to do or, or not do. And sometimes those incidents have nothing to do with any particular third-party human trying to do something malicious. Sometimes it's the environment. And so I'm not drawing comparison to the environmental challenges that ERCOT faced in Texas that we covered in a previous episode. Absolutely. 
Yeah. But California does face its own unique environmental challenges. No, that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, that's part of the exercise planning uh, of thinking through what what would happen in your uh, you know your n my you know it's not just an n minus one right normal uh, with one thing going wrong uh, but thinking n minus two n minus three right what happens if we have a uh, a series of wildfires. Right. And that limits which lines we can have operational. Uh, And we're in the middle of a global pandemic. So we're limited in our ability to interact physically. It it used to be when you tried to get creative, right? Some of the scenarios you would dream up, uh, people would go, would roll their eyes. This could never happen. This could never be, right? Maybe one silver lining out of the COVID pandemic has been that people are more open to more creativity in this role playing because they have a greater appreciation of, yeah, some crazy things really can happen uh, and they can come together and all happen at once. So what's next for Southern California Edison? Well, so I I think in this space, uh, I know Edison has a team in place. I've actually moved to a different role myself. Uh, but Edison has a pretty robust team in, in place. It's uh, been growing in both in terms of size and capabilities. Uh, the, the concerns, I think, are now much more prevalent. So when you look at <clears throat> industrial control systems, I think you're really having a moment in cybersecurity, both in terms of an awareness on the executive levels uh, as to what the potentials are. Uh, also the policymakers have shown up at the party, which, uh, has both good and bad aspects. And we can talk a little about that if you'd like. Uh, but frankly, I think it's an area that's just going to continue to grow and mature, uh, as we be, as things become more and more integrated. That means that, uh, infrastructure becomes a much more critical part of the national security conversation. So it's not just necessarily about the business of keeping the generation flowing so that we can still collect and pay the bills. We've moved well beyond that uh, as an industry, really. And uh, I think the, the next steps are for to figure out how to balance that role and responsibility that the utility industry holds in the national security conversation uh, with the governance structure we have here in in the United States uh, of how we have this set up uh, in terms of our regulation. And, And I think that that's also a conversation that's occurring across many other industries. And that's why ICS is having this uh, industrial control systems are are having this moment in cybersecurity. So if you look at the history of these regulations in the electric industry and how we've gotten to the place where we're at currently, or similarly, cybersecurity regulation in the finance industry, and then turn and look at what is going on with industrial control systems across manufacturing and other uh, important segments of the economy. Uh, 
I think that you're going to see those other industries are going to be following behind where finance and, and the utilities uh, are at. Um, you know, I think we've seen it's some more troubling examples in terms of manufacturing and healthcare. For example, some of the uh, recently reported attacks, uh, it gets people concerned, rightfully so. Uh, so, you know, there needs to be a, a system to address those concerns. Uh, and that's where regulation can step in. I'm not saying it's a panacea. It's actually going to solve uh, your problem and provide you with security. Uh, I, I think that regulation's role is more to draw attention uh, and provide you with a base minimum. And then from there, it's the responsibility of those industries, of those actors to step up and design the systems and implement true security. If you could wave a magic, air-gapped, of course, wand, what <laughs> is one thing you would change? If I could wave my magic air-gapped wand and change one thing, I think I would change the perception that automation is an automatic cost savings. Um, and I know that's somewhat amorphous. <laughs> it's, it's very, um, it, it's not very concrete, certainly. But what I mean by that is I think that in a lot of businesses, automation, uh, taking what was uh, separate and disconnected and putting it onto the air, air quotes, uh, cloud, so as to provide cost savings, to cut down on labor, to consolidate, all of these things are seen as, hey, this is great. This is great for the bottom line. And we get all these cost savings. What I think happens is the costs of security do not get factored in until after the fact. And then the 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 execs are upset. Well, I was supposed to save twenty percent by doing this. Now I'm only saving ten percent. But just in the same way that previously you had physical security needs, uh, or you had costs in the physical realm, now you have those security and cost needs in the cyber realm, if you will. Uh, and so I think it's the overvaluing of automation and undervaluing uh, of the cost of doing business in, in a new way. All right. You waved your magic wand. Now, <laughs> looking into the crystal ball for a five-year prediction, one good and one bad thing. Well, since you gave me a very precise time period to analyze for five years, uh, I'll say on the good thing, I think that we're going to continue to see maturity uh, and growth in this space, both in terms of on the regulatory side, right? Where I think we're going to be getting some new regulations. I don't think it'll be happening, quite frankly, until 2023 because of the um, political machinations. But nonetheless, we will be getting a new series of regulations, uh, of legislation and regulations that uh, expand 
uh, into more industries for industrial control systems. Uh, and I think that's a positive that is going to further drive the development that has been occurring in terms of vendors out there uh, who are servicing these needs, um, both in terms of uh, products and uh, uh, service offerings. In terms of the one bad thing, you know, I think five years is about the right timeline, frankly, Um I think that we're going to see there's going to be some incident. Uh, I don't necessarily want to say the feared cyber Pearl Harbor, per se. Um, I don't know what the standard is for meeting that level anymore. But there will be an incident similar in the way that uh, the target hack, for example, really opened a lot of people's eyes to the risk for their information uh, being held by all these various companies. Not that the target hack itself was the most sophisticated, not that it was the biggest even at the time, uh, but Maybe it was because of a popular brand. Maybe it was because uh, of timing um, of when the news was announced or, or any of a variety of factors that I may not even be considering. That happened to be what perked people's interest. Um, there was a, a political scientist, James Q. Wilson, who talked about something called policy windows. And it's the idea of you know how when you, you go to launch a rocket or the shuttles, right, they would have these launch windows, a specific period of time when uh, everything was aligned perfectly so that you could uh, execute the launch or can execute the launch within this set period of time. And then the weather uh, changes on you and the window closes. Uh, I think it's similar idea here for the policy windows and, and for that large incident that we're going to be seeing that's going to push things forward. I'm not hoping for it. Uh, and I'm certainly hoping that uh, it's a it's a minimum of impact, but a maximum of awareness opportunity. Uh, and I don't know if it's necessarily which industry it's going to be in, but I do see something like that coming and driven by a nation state actor uh, in support of other policy goals. That's the, the one bad thing I see in, in the crystal ball five years out. So uh, grab bag, anything we didn't cover that you want to? Maybe I will. I'll, I'll take the opportunity here to, to talk a, a little bit about the grid and frankly, what a, uh, what an impressive machine this is. Um, so the, the way the U S is set up, you basically have three, uh, really North America, <clears throat> excuse me, cause it, it operates in the U S, uh, Mexico and Canada, and you have three interconnections. They're called uh, the Eastern interconnection, the Western interconnection, and then ERCOT, which um, I forget exactly what ERCOT stands for, but it covers most of Texas, although not all. Um, the So you've got most of Texas covered by ERCOT. The Western interconnection covers from, it covers El Paso and a little bit into Texas there, it covers New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming. I'm trying to go up in my head. 
Uh, and then I think most of Montana, Alberta, and British Columbia, and then Baja uh, down south. It, it's this Western interconnection. It's it's the world's largest machine. Uh, it's often referred to as. And and if you think about what's taking place, you have a you know a windmill on the Columbia River that is uh, spinning and generating electricity and moves. That's moving energy through wires down to a substation up to bulk electric transmission, um, BES, as it's called, or the BES, uh, uh, but the bulk electric system on through over thousands and thousands of miles, right? Then coming to a substation here in uh, beautiful Southern California, stepping down at, at that substation to a wire that's running through my backyard and down to a panel on the back of my house. Uh, and then from there, of course, you know, on into the, the plug in the wall and then up through my switch box, my USB router into this microphone. It, it's really quite incredible when you consider all of the millions of similar transactions that are occurring simultaneously. And... <clears throat> The thing is that when you see these things in the movies, and I know you know this and most of your listeners are probably aware of this, it's not something where you just push one button, right? And the whole thing turns off. Um, That's good and bad, right? I mean, sometimes <laughs> you wish you could just push one button and make the thing work. Uh, but there's lots of interconnected and intermoving parts. And frankly, sometimes as you mentioned earlier, sometimes those pieces will fail on you on their own, regardless of what you're trying to do. Uh, so, you know, it's not about guarding this one red button on one control panel uh, on the proverbial, uh, you know, Homer Simpson <laughs> type screen, right? It It's much more complicated than that, which you know, I say partially to indicate of how tough the job is, but the flip side of that is also that that's a great opportunity, right? Because that means that there's plenty of redundancy and plenty of resiliency in the system. And I, I, that's the part that gives me greater hope. Uh, if you just had to protect the that one proverbial button, uh, it'd be a lot more difficult to, of a job that you'd be talking about. And so if you carry that example out, once you understand how complicated all of this is, uh, it's, it's both positive in the sense of there's a lot of opportunities for uh, folks to step in and protect things. But, um, you know, the flip side of that is the old joke of, you know, the internet really is uh, it held together by chewing gum and, and twine. So. <laughs> all right. And I think that is a wrap. Thank you for listening to Hack the Plant, a podcast of the R Street Institute and ICS Village Nonprofit. Subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. Even better, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so we can reach even more listeners. Tell us what you thought about it and who we should interview next by finding us on Twitter at RSI or at ICS underscore village. Finally, if you want to know more about R Street or ICS Village, visit rstreet.org or icsvillage.com. I'm your host, Bryson Borg. Thank you to executive producer Tyler Lowe of Fader Creative, 
creative producer, William Gray, and editor, Dominic Sterrett of Sterrett Production.